Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like managing finances with a partner without causing a breakup. We all know about that in my life and how hard that's been for me and also my listeners. You guys hear them talking about it on the mailbags. It is hard to manage finances with a partner. Putting away money for retirement, since I'm not going to be doing this podcast forever. Sorry, I guess I could, but retirement is huge for me. I am deeply focused on it right now and planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year. Taxes are a doozy and it's always changing. How do you know what to do? Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Hoo-ah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Keeps your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now you're Well, Deadbeats, this is it. The final time that I will say these words this season. I'm not, I'm not dying. Are you ready? I'm Gabby Dunn, and this is Bad With Money. I said that like it was Jeopardy. Look, I know, I'm bummed out this season's ending too. But don't worry, if you get lonely, you can always just go back to the beginning of the season and relive the magic all over again. In fact, do that. Listen to this season on repeat until, I don't know, we've fixed the system. On second thought, don't do that. You might lose your mind. But why not? Go back to season one, season two. Enjoy yourself. Anyway, let's get to this week's topic. Millennials. Don't go. Don't go. Don't go. Millennials, if you couldn't tell, is in quotation marks. Because... We're focusing on the label specifically this week and because I think that label is ridiculously flawed. Yeah, I said it and I stand by it. I'm about to stand by it for a whole episode. You could say that this whole season and probably this whole show is about millennials and the economy, whether it's structural racism or healthcare or campaign finance, and you would be right, but not for the reason you think. Because folks, bad with money is also about everyone in the economy. And millennials just happen to be part of everyone. And that's why it's so wild to me that opinion pieces, books, news articles, everything about the way we talk about millennials makes it seem like they're a totally different species. Like they can't possibly be dealing with any of the economic issues everyone else in America is experiencing. Okay, that is 
untrue, duh. So I wanted to look a little closer at some of the labels millennials are given. We all know the bad ones. Millennials are snowflakes who got participation trophies and now live in their parents' basements because they didn't study engineering in college. Wah, wah, wah. Sorry, I don't know what that voice was. <laughs> but even the ones you think are good, the most diverse generation, the most educated, the most progressive, they aren't good to focus on either. How a generation is characterized is important in ways you might not realize. Find out why after the break. We're back, and to dig into millennial myths and grossly inaccurate labels, I talked to Kimberly Quick, a senior policy associate at the Century Foundation. You apply these broad ideas, millennials are sheltered, or they all have these college degrees, or they're most diverse, that they must be most woke, right? And you apply Mm. that to all millennials, like this entire generation is like woke, privileged, entitled, wealthy, overachieving, right? Mm. Or on another end, like woefully underachieving, like not doing anything at all with their lives. Um, And you make policy around it or as dangerous, you forget about the majority of millennials that actually don't fit that stereotype and you ignore them. Right. You don't make policy around their needs and concerns. Right. There's like a bunch of millennial myths, obviously. And I think we know a lot of them instinctively. Can you talk about what's the overachieving millennial and what's the reality? Sure. So the overachieving millennial stereotype is that millennials like all have these college degrees. Right. The reality is, sure, that millennials are more likely to possess a bachelor's degree um, than previous generations. But two thirds of millennials don't have a bachelor's degree. And Part of the challenge with that is more than in previous generations that had the benefit of strong unionized work and strong trades, those jobs don't exist in the same way anymore, and they don't pay in the same way anymore. And so millennials that are college graduates earn much, much more than their counterparts, even with a starting lower salary generally. So there's a huge growth in inequality within the millennial generation and then between the millennial generation and the generations that preceded it. So can we talk also about the um, the sheltered millennial stereotype? So at the same time as you hear these like over overachieving millennial stereotypes, a lot of people um, or most people have this image of millennials as um, everyone gets a participation trophy and, you know, everyone is super sheltered, like sheltered from the real world, my real world that I grew up in. Exactly. Or, you know, their parents are, you know, hovering right all of the time and just paying for everything. And like it's a failure to launch syndrome and, and things like that. And in reality, That comparison only works if you're comparing the wealthiest, whitest sliver of the millennial generation to the wealthiest, whitest sliver of the Gen X era. Which is what they're doing. Right, exactly. If you're thinking about millennials, you know, in totality, right? So, like, the generation as a whole, of which, like, I think it's worth pointing out, one in five 24 to 35-year-olds live in poverty, compared to one in 20 in the early 1970s, right? So this is urgent. It's an emergency. 
Um, it's not a, a joke about participation trophies, but if you right, com- it's brushed off though. Right, exactly. But if you compare, you know, how these different groups of millennials were raised, um, what you'll find is that middle class and particularly working class and poor families actually do raise their children um, in a way that they're not getting a bunch of participation trophies. They're not highly scheduled with violin lessons and ballet lessons and soccer camps and all of these things going on at the same time. They can't afford to do that. They can't afford to do that. And that's never actually been the case. Right. And so lower income parents do tend to turn over more responsibility to their children um, and place a higher value on unstructured time because they have to. Right. So there are young people, both youth that are not millennials um, and millennials that grew up having to help raise siblings, having to work part time jobs, having to go to school and work simultaneously, having to create their own schedules and um, their own types of entertainment, right? And they're not supervised or shielded from, quote unquote, this real world. They're in it early. So we talk, you talked a little bit about this, but the colorblind millennial myth, which is like this idea that we're all like super woke SJWs who are just out here trying to eliminate gender. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because the, these news stories, these like ter- scared news stories being like, the college campuses are having LGBTQ only dining halls and like, oh my God. you know, like millennials are letting their children transition or like. I love that that's a nightmare and not like the other millennials marching on UVA's campus with tiki torches talking about white power. But okay. Exactly. Like those are also millennials. So can you explain that? So I think that this narrative is constructed out of convenience, right? Because it allows society to kind of ignore the work that we have to do around race and identity um, going Mm -hmm. forward. But there's this... And dismiss it as a trend. Dismiss it as a generational trend. But there's this narrative that, like, millennials of all races and backgrounds, you know, are forming a circle and singing Kumbaya and just, like, loving (laughs) each other and not seeing color. Color doesn't exist anymore. We're colorblind, hooray. The reality is much more complicated than that. Um, sure, millennials as a generation, as a whole, turn out to be more accepting of things like LGBTQ rights um, and interracial marriage than their parents were. But if you break the data down, that's because millennials are the most diverse generation and that you have more people who have exposure to LGBTQ people or identify openly as LGBTQ themselves or are millennials of color, right? Mm-hmm. So if you isolate the responses of white millennials in particular, their views look like their parents' views and their voting patterns look like their parents' voting patterns. So it's not that they're more woke, it's that they're more outnumbered. Yes. And there's there's a lot of data to back this up, right? So like almost 60% of white millennials think that discrimination against white people is as big of a problem as discrimination against minorities, right? You know, 40% or less than 40% of millennials think that white people have more opportunities than people of color. Um, But then when you look at millennials of color, that number, you know, increases significantly. So millennials are not on the same page when it comes to how we're thinking about 
race and opportunity um, and the intersection of those two things. Well, I sometimes am like, am I the what's going on? Like, why are people not seeing this? Well, they're not seeing it because it's inconvenient to see it. Right. Yeah. Like, what if we were to acknowledge that as happens with racism and fear and homophobia and biases that older generations have passed those down and that our education system and the ways that we are segregated and the ways that we are ignorant of each other's experiences have not equipped young people to, you know, push off the inheritance of bias, right? Mm. What, what is the solution to that? That requires sort of a fundamental rethinking and restructuring of what were the narratives that we're believing ourselves, the narratives that we're passing down from generation to generation, and ultimately the policies that are enabling these things to exist, right? It's right. really inconvenient to say, yeah, we have a whole bunch of like racist, misogynist young people out here. Like it's not dying off with yeah. you know, David Duke when he passes. Or like we need to work on re-educating young men or we need to, you know, there's like no, right. you know, the, everybody writes about this problem of of young men needing help, needing to feel mm -hmm. like they can express themselves. What's going on with young white men or young men in general? And then mm -hmm. everyone just goes. Rrr. Right. And that's the end. <laughs> Our solution to that hasn't been to think about curriculum and civic education and um, you know, societal structures that can address that, our solution to that has been to sort of ignore it or call people who are fed up with it snowflakes. Mm -hmm. So how important is it for people to broaden the understanding of millennials? Like it has effect on, on colleges and on government policy. So the labor market looks very different than than it did in our parents' generation um, and in their parents' generation. Mm -hmm. um, and so w one way that millennials need to be incorporated into the conversation is how do we make it so that, you know, a city doesn't follow, like, you know, fire all of their public sector workers and then rehire them as contractors without any health care, without any benefits, without any paid family leave, right? Like what systems can we have in place to protect workers in this gig economy and to incentivize, or not even gig economy, but independent contractors, um, and then incentivize employers to, you know, provide benefits, mm -hmm. right? So these are not questions that we've asked, but if we were to acknowledge that, you know, millennials either aren't getting, you know, rent checks from their parents every month right. um, to be able to live or, you know, they're not all these super wealthy people working at, you know, hedge funds JP or Morgan. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You'd have to start thinking really critically about, you know, how do we protect wages and benefits in the way I'll just point out that our parent generation did have those things protected. Right. You have to think about, you know, what does retirement look like for this generation mm -hmm. um, in an era where I look, I don't know anyone my age with a pension. No, of course like, not. People, people are like, what is a pension? Of course not. It's all switched over to 401ks, which are, uh, I've learned, essentially investments. So nothing is guaranteed. Right. Exactly. So you have to start thinking very critically about like what systems of retirement 
make sense. Mm -hmm. What social security systems make sense? I'm a fan of social security. I don't think my generation is going to get paid out of social security. I think the the solution to that is actually quite simple and that there's an income bracket for the Social Security tax. Mm -hmm. The Social Security tax is one of the most or I think the only regressive tax that we have in America right now where someone who makes $30,000 a year is paying a higher percentage of their income than someone who makes $300,000 a year for the Social Security tax. If we take that income cap off, we fix Social Security. Like, there are, are ways to think about, you know, how to do this. But first, you have to acknowledge that millennials aren't this super privileged, overprotected, participation trophy, woke group that has no problems or that has problems that are solely self-inflicted going into the future. So are you optimistic in any way? Do you think we can shift the narrative? Like, will it just happen as we age or? I I think so, right? I think I see some of this conversation shifting. Um, and I think it's also important to remember that millennials in many ways are the canaries in the coal mine. So what's happening to millennials is also happening to older workers who maybe are starting a new career or have gone back to school or have right. been laid off. And so and they have active memories of this time when there was less income inequality in the United States. And so I, I hope that there's room for some intersection there, some cross-generational mm -hmm. intersection. And I think the the more that we have political conversations and social conversations about what the problem is and what possible solutions can be, um, the more we can move towards an economy that works for everyone, millennials included. It's bad enough that the labels we use when we talk about millennials are wildly inaccurate. But surprise, it gets worse. The problem is compounded by a lot of very calculated policies and decisions made by the generations before us. Coming up next, I want to shine a depressing light on the economic shit show the so-called millennial generation inherited. Here we go, right after this ad break. We're back and get ready to get into it with Michael Hobbs. Michael is a reporter for Huffington Post and the co-host of a podcast called You're Wrong About. This past December, he wrote a piece for Highline called Generation Screwed. I mean, life is objectively harder for us. And, you know, we we use in the tagline of the story that, you know, millennials are facing the scariest financial future of any generation since the Great Depression. And I spent months asking economists, like, is this accurate? Like, are we allowed to say this in the article? And they all said, yes, this is unequivocally true. So in the piece... You trace the, the current financial moment back to some of the factors that led to it. Can you piece together some of the policy decisions or changes in government assistance practices or changes even in the way like people work and play the stock market that brought right. us here? I think it's important to realize how constructed these political times that we're in really are. When you look at something like student debt, America is the only country that has student debt like this. America is the only country where people are paying off their student debt into their 40s. And that is mm -hmm. based on decisions that we have made. And so when you start looking back into the history, what you really find is around the 80s is really the breaking point. That is a time when three unrelated things happened. So first of all, the financial sector took over the economy. 
where companies were expected to be as efficient as possible. And so we hear a lot about things like outsourcing to Indonesia and outsourcing to China. But what companies really started doing in the 1980s was outsourcing, quote unquote, to contractors. So the Mm -hmm. people that clean your offices at night, those used to be your employees. Now those are contracted out employees. And so Mm -hmm. the more you squeeze for efficiency, the lower wages go, the worse working conditions get, and the more removed you get from the well-being of your workers. And so that hyper-efficiency is translated into work that just is of lower quality than it was 30 or 40 years ago. You're less likely to have a pension. You're less likely to get health insurance with your job. You're less likely to get severance pay. You're less likely to have any kind of career ladder upwards. So work has gotten worse. At the same time, the safety net has really gone away. And it's really this whole narrative of personal responsibility, which you've also talked about on the show, that we started oh, getting... a fan. I know. We, this is just the greatest two words fan. in American history. <laughs> um, and what happened was it, it became this thing that the point of welfare wasn't to alleviate poverty anymore. The point of welfare was to get people into work. So mm-hmm. more and more welfare programs started having these little eligibility criteria and asterisks next to them, basically. And so housing assistance kind of went away and cash payments got harder to get and food stamps Mm -hmm. got harder to get. And just in this slow drip, drip, nickel and dime way, there's just fewer and fewer forms of welfare that are available to people. And so if anything goes wrong, there's really nothing stopping that from completely spiraling into disaster. So those are the first two depressing things. The third depressing thing is that housing has gone insane, that essentially American cities are not allowed to grow at this point. And so if you look at all of the places in America, we're now, we're, we're a knowledge economy, right? Most of us are sitting behind desks. Most of us are not growing things or working in factories, the vast majority of the economy. And yet all Mm -hmm. of the cities that are adding jobs are too expensive to live in. There was a time when it made sense to move to New York or San Francisco to get a job because it would boost your wages. But now the boost in your wages that you get is swallowed by the extra housing costs. Or you can do like what a lot of people in the Bay Area do now. You can live really far away from your job where you can actually afford. And then you have a two-hour commute both ways. And so this is the choice that young people have is we can stay somewhere where there's no good jobs or we can move somewhere where there are good jobs, but we can't actually afford to live. So, okay, so so the comparison isn't accurate. Like, is this moment worse worse than it's been before? I mean, I guess I don't want to, because I don't want boomers jumping on me being like, well, but our generation had this problem. Like, I get it. Everyone has hmm. problems. And, like, everyone loves to, to shit on the next generation right. or the generation before. Yeah. I mean, our parents' generation, their parents shit on them for Elvis moving his hips, right? And the Beatles' right. hair touching their collar. Right. So you have to any any criticism of young people by older people, you have to control for the normal human tendency of like 99 percent of humans to shit on people younger than them. Like that is how humans work. So once you control for that and you start looking at the actual economic conditions, there's really no case that we are lazy or spoiled or anything else. But I think it's worth dwelling on the boomerness and kind of how much we should blame the boomers, because I think since the article came out. I've gotten a lot of emails from boomers saying, look, I'm 48 years old. I lost my job in the recession Mm -hmm. and nobody wants to hire a 48 year old. And so I'm driving for Uber. And so 
I don't want to take away the extent to which boomers are suffering from the same thing that we are. And there's huge inequalities within boomers. And I don't think Mm -hmm. that sort of it gets us anywhere to be like, man, boomers bad. But I think it's worth noting that there is one group of Americans that has benefited from a lot of these changes to the economy. And that tends to be managers of companies, people who own stocks and people Mm -hmm. who own homes. That there's no such thing as a housing crisis if you own a home. A lot of people in the Bay Area are now worth two or three million dollars because they are lucky enough to buy a home in the 1960s or the 1970s. And so it's worth noting that there are huge inequalities. And I think power is always invisible to the people wielding it. And when you have a secure job, when your job pays you out a defined benefit pension, when you own a home that is now worth eight figures... It's really easy to say, well, why can't everybody else do this? I did it. I, I, I kind of sleepwalked into the situation. I worked really hard when I was in my 20s. Why aren't these kids working hard enough? And the dividends of working hard or the ways in which you have to work hard have simply shifted. There's a lot of people that work really hard and they just can't get out from under their student debts or the mistakes mm-hmm. that you made. You were defended from your mistakes because health insurance costs weren't so insane, right? You get in a bike accident in the 1960s, you pay your bill, it's a couple hundred bucks. You get in a bike mm-hmm. accident now and it can be five figures, right? We just don't mm-hmm. have the same resiliency because of the changes around us. So I used to uh, I used to have this philosophy professor that always said, you can't blame people for their options. You can only blame people for their choices. And our options Ooh. have really changed and we still get blamed for our choices. Right. I mean, one of the things, what I really think is at the root of the anger, and I think is totally invisible, is that another thing that our parents have completely forgotten is when they were protesting the Vietnam War, when they were electing JFK, people under 45 outnumbered people over 45, two to one. So Mm -hmm. when they were our age, they had the political power to have their preferences and their ideologies reflected in the structures of power, right? As they have aged... This is the only generation in American history to retain political power as it ages. So we now have the average member of Congress is 59. That's also, that's 10 years higher than it was about 13 years ago. So we have a generation that just clings onto power, which again, there are inequalities within boomers. I don't want to blame every individual boomer. Of course. At the structural level, they have retained power far longer than any other American generation history. So when we have all this conversation about economic anxiety and about race and about all of the really gross reasons why Donald Trump won, a huge reason is that older generations just got outnumbered in American history. And we haven't had an opportunity to kind of have that baton pass from one generation to the other. We are still waiting for our moment Mm -hmm. to actually have our preferences be reflected. And so I think that, to me anyway, that, that is where so much of our anger comes from, is that you look around and the, you know, your friends are diverse and your friends are much more left wing. And then you look at who's in power and you just don't see any of your preferences being reflected because the generation gap is so huge. And this generation is still having power over us. And then also, you know, our concerns are seen as silly, too, because it's like, we gave you gay marriage. What do you want? You know? And we're like, well, we would love like trans healthcare and for trans people to feel safe in bathrooms. That's like too much. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, as a gay person, I am glad that we have gay marriage, but 
also as a gay person, it's like, I want other stuff too. Like, it's not enough. Of course. It's not enough that like, we just have this one sort of symbolic or partly symbolic thing when it's like, can we have a minimum wage, please? Like, can we have things yeah. that are truly <laughs> meaningful? Like, obviously gay marriage is meaningful, but there's so yeah. many other opportunities that we've completely missed. And, mm-hmm. and you know, so many people have just been kind of asleep at the wheel as this has been happening, like right in front of them for so long. I think that's another, that's another area where millennials feel so angry politically is like, well, how could you let this happen. Like you watched this happen and you didn't do anything about it. And so it feels like this bill is coming due that we're going to have to pay. Right. It feels to us like our own parents haven't really been as concerned about their kids' futures as they should have been. And I don't want to be unfair, but I think a lot of people feel that way, even if it's a little too oversimplified. Well, there's this thing of like entitled, which I think that we have to throw that word in the garbage can because it's like, Oh, you're entitled. Like it's it's a slippery slope, right? To me, it looks like people were like, "You're entitled to healthcare. You're entitled to rights. Now you're entitled to air and water. Oh, now you think you're entitled? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, now you think you're entitled to live in a comfortable home? It's like, wh- how far down do we go? For it's like, oh, you're so entitled to wear clothing. Right. Like, right. What are we? What are we doing? Like, what? Right. I mean, when did uh when do you trace your like millennial radicalization back to like, when did this stuff start to get to you? Season two of this podcast. No. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, well, I had a lot of internalized self-hatred about it. Like we said, Mm. like it's this, instead of seeing systemic problems, I thought it was, uh, like individualized. I thought Mm. I was a, a, a bad, uh, stupid, morally incompetent person. Um, I remember, being living in New York, being 23, maybe going down to Zuccotti Park to look at Occupy mm. and being like these people like and I was left wing. Right. Being mm. like, these people are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm like, oh, my God, they tricked me. Mm. The people in charge tricked me into mm. thinking that something that would have benefited me mm. was uh, I living in a in a garbage studio with another person Mm. like unable to make any money like literally pawning my belongings Mm. like me like me right unable to see a doctor and I was like what's Occupy about (laughs) what like yeah I mean I keep looking back at how like complacent we all were during the Obama years right we're like there's so complacent I mean I think my own failure during those years was really thinking thinking that there's like a sense of momentum in the country, right? Yeah. That like we have, we have a, our first black president, like the pendulum of the country is swinging and that's building mm-hmm. this momentum, like this march. And so mm-hmm. there's, I, I feel like it's like a form of media bias in a way that it's like, we think everything that happens is like a new narrative. So we're like, well, now there's right. this narrative of progress. The country's on the right track. Right. So we don't have to do anything. And so we were just kind of like, yeah. well, we'll just sort of see how this happens. And like healthcare, like there's no point in like really pushing for a public option because like it's all going to work itself out. And Mm -hmm. then we, of course, all of us woke up in 2016 and we're like, we were really just asleep at the wheel those whole eight years. Honestly, all of us, all of us except for black women who tried to tell us. Yeah. But here's the thing. Basically, yeah. That's what I mean. Like you and I are gay. Like we should (laughs) have known better. What were we doing? (laughs) I know. I mean, that's the worst, like the extent to which just we all had our blinders on is so embarrassing now. And yeah, also, yeah, just 
the lack of accountability for that among political leaders and the lack of, I guess, real soul searching for like, how do we create a momentum that lasts rather than just, mm-hmm. I mean, it's understandable. We're just trying to fight the next battle now, but right. how do we not let that complacency sink in? Right. I mean, people, people keep talking about how like Nixon was impeached and then what was it? Six years later, another Republican was elected. <laughs> like we're not, right. there's no such thing as this idea of like for a generation, the party has squandered. Blah, like there's no such thing as that. There's just right. constant warfare and it seems like most people on the left, including me, totally forgot that for that entire, those entire eight years and just like let it roll down the hill under its own momentum mm. and like didn't watch it at all. Even as marginalized people. But obviously, I mean, I think we, we were white and that had a lot to do with it. Totally. What, what is millennials responsibility as we age into maybe age into power? Or do we just like make friends with a bunch of Gen Zers and go help us? <laughs> I mean, I think it's like the the campsite rule, like leave it better than you found it. And I think that's that's what our parents' generation on the whole hasn't done. And I think we need to put in place just automatic systems that we don't have to have these fights all the time. I mean, things like raising the minimum wage, bringing back meaningful food stamps, all these things are already around and we've seen them get kind of wrung out. And to me, it feels like, one of the biases I think that we have on the left, especially because we're so kind of like overeducated, is that we think that like the next big policy idea is what's going to save us or the next big policy idea is what's going to bring people around like to our camp. Like, oh, if I just explain to you the new eligibility criteria for the universal basic income, you'll agree with me. When the forces that have done this to us, the forces that have rolled back the safety net and put more money into the financial sector, they're interested in winning. Like there's no policy idea that's going to bring them around. There's only movement building. The policy ideas are already there. And so I think we need to be comfortable fighting on those grounds that the age of persuasion is over. We need to be comfortable with building power, making it easier for people to vote, making it just automatic that the country gets better without thinking that we're ever going to win the war of ideas. I don't think mm-hmm. people on the right have been waging a war of ideas. They've been waging a war of procedures, a war of attrition. I mean, nobody nobody on the right ever convinced us that these were good ideas, right? Let's give like a quarter of our GDP over to the financial sector. No, they never convinced anybody of that. They just did it. And that's what mm-hmm. we need to be comfortable doing is, look, if this helps people in measurable ways, let's do it. And we don't. We don't need to waste time explaining. We just need to build movements and have these movements persist. So this all feels bleak. And it kind of always feels bleak on this show, doesn't it? But don't worry. We're in this together, regardless of generation. To further blur the lines, my next guest has decided to denounce the millennial label entirely. She'll tell us all about it after the break. Welcome back to Bad With Money, the podcast that thinks generation ain't nothing but a label. I didn't pull that off. Really, guys, it's basically just an arbitrary label that we have decided to slap onto a cohort of people living at a specific time. 
And because it's so arbitrary, my next guest, Nona willis Aronowitz, an editor and writer who I have worked with for a very long time and love dearly, has decided to speak out against it. How did you get to hate the term? You were talking to tech bros in Milwaukee and, and what happened? So I was in their super cute, uh, like basement startup office. There was yeah. a PBR um, skateboard. There was like a basketball hoop, like every cliche possible. And they were all talking about how Milwaukee has so many opportunities for young and broke people. And a lot of upwardly mobile millennials were moving here. And they even used the term millennials, which I feel like millennials don't often do. Um, They were really pro this kind of, you know, big fish in a small pond vibe. They were really selling it. And then um, as luck would have it, right after I talked to them, I stepped out into the street and there was this massive $15 an hour protest um, with fast food workers. And a lot of them were about the same age as the people at the, in the startup company. And I talked to them a little bit about their concerns and they couldn't have been more different. Right. And at that moment, I realized that the term millennials and a lot of the cliches that come with that only pertain to a particular milieu, um, a socioeconomic class that's out of reach for a lot of the 80 million people who demographically are considered millennials. This narrative of being entitled is interesting because you talked about millennials are viewed one way and then poor people are just consistently poor people Mm -hmm. and they don't have they almost don't have ages. Right. Well, there's this parallel narrative in in the media that's sort of poverty porn, right? Like, and we see some of these stories elevated to the point of virality. Like, everybody remembers the nail salon piece in the New York Times, for instance. Everybody remembers Dasani, whose mom was technically a millennial, but they don't talk about it in terms of millennials. That you know, when we talk about um, even mo- even pieces that don't have to do with money that maybe have to do with violence, such as, you know, any Black Lives Matter police shooting piece. Mm -hmm. People say like young black men, but they never say like young millennial black men. It's just really, it's really not part of the narrative unless you're Mm -hmm. a certain type of millennial. I talk about um, in the book that, which uh, again, will be out soon. Uh, (laughs) I, (laughs) uh, I talk about in the book how Sandra Bland was 28 years old. Right. Like, so... Uh, how does this exclusion of these people of of lower income or people of color from the narrative, how does that affect, you know, policy? Because we've talked about, like, you can't advocate for the needs of a generation without knowing who's in that generation. Like, um, you know, a lot of the conversation around people my age is student loan forgiveness, but there is like a huge swath who that doesn't apply to because they didn't even go to college. Yeah, I think I think the only reason um, why generational designations matter at all is because it's some sort of identity that you can go to Capitol Hill with. So far, the millennials haven't really achieved much. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) Bernie was their candidate and he clearly didn't win. Um, but millennials did feel really attached to Obama, who proved himself to be um, a generally centrist president um, who was um, genuinely um, more progressive in his second term, but still didn't address um, sort of like deep 
seated poverty related issues. And I think, you know, when you have um, this disenfranchised sort of silent group, it's just it's which came first, the chicken or the egg. Right. It's like if if you don't include them in a, in a generational narrative, um, they're not going to be able to speak for themselves. But then um, once you have included them, then you have to make sure that they have some sort of mechanism to talk like there, there's like, you know, I think like millennial is so far code for a lot of things. But if it's so inclusive that it means nothing, then it's not going to be useful as an identity to go to Capitol Hill with, if that makes sense. Well, I think it means nothing now. Yeah. I mean, I think the typical millennial across the country works in a retailer service job, um, has their first child when they're 25, not necessarily in um, a married or like committed relationship. Um, Mm -hmm. They may or may not be living with their parents, but not in like the millennial way where they went to college and now they're like bumming around their parents' house. Um, They're there because their parents are like, well, we raised you. Now you kind of have to contribute. And sometimes, you know, if rents are high in the area, it's sort of a symbiotic relationship. Um, And that's especially true for um, Latino families or other immigrant families. Yeah, right. The idea that we're all like holding back on having kids and basically ruining everything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's because, but we're not, right? I mean, it's just women in in certain economic classes in cities or something, right? Yeah, I mean, the birth rate is going down, down which, which may is. or may not have to do with um, the economy. The economy is good now, but... It wasn't for a really long time. It took us forever to recover and wages are still stagnant. So I think that's a calculus that a lot of people are making, but it is really lopsided. The most educated of us, um, paradoxically, the ones who have the most means to have kids um, are more are more gun shy about it. It's more of a priority for people who don't have demanding careers. Right. And and also like move you would move in to have, help, you know, child care from the grandparents which is also so expensive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Multi-generational households makes so much sense on so many levels. It's just not the outdated American dream that a lot of people still... The American dream. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) we're really in the process of redefining that. You know, in the 10 years that I've been a journalist, my idea of the American dream has really changed by seeing what people value across the country. I mean, I don't necessarily want to be a homeowner right now, Um, That used Mm -hmm. to be sort of the holy grail. And now, you know, I mean, the housing crisis happened, but then I just see a lot of my friends sort of doing it because that's what you're supposed to do. And then they're just saddled with this thing forever, (laughs) seemingly forever. Like in, in distilling your research, like what would you what are you most frustrated? Like, what do you hope people know or what would you like people from the podcast to know from listening to this? I think when you hear generalizations about about young people, you really have to consider, you have to read between the lines and consider who, who is being talked about. I think people um, take stereotypes at face value when they read mainstream media. And I think we have to be a lot more discerning about that. Um, And um, I think generational, again, like generational designations are useful, but if you are going to use them, you have to try to be as inclusive as humanly possible. And you have to say, um, you know, police violence is a generational issue too. And, um, you know, people having babies in their 20s 
and needing childcare is, is a generational issue too. Um, these things that we don't think of as millennial issues are are just as much millennial issues as you know uh, the traditional student loans living in your parents' basement narrative. Look, friends, friends, poor friends. The media is hell-bent on hewing to this meaningless set of labels they've ascribed to our generation. My generation, our generation, whoever's listening to this. And while it's tempting to just ignore them, that's not going to make the problem go away. I think it's important to really interrogate these stereotypes that even I and my fellow millennials buy into. As you heard in the interview with Michael, I was tricked into believing a lot of self-hating stereotypes, too. We have to get rid of that shit. While we work on changing the narrative around poverty and economic mobility, we should remember that millennials are a big part of that and not just this weird separate thing. Millennials are people. In fact, we have a lot of power to influence elections as long as we get out and participate. Our country is in a moment where we're reconsidering a lot of our assumptions about how our economy and our democracy should function. In case you hadn't noticed after listening to the whole third season of this show, I assume multiple times. So let's get out and participate. Finally, friends, take the things you hear about millennials with a grain of salt and about Gen Z and about any generation. Talk to your people and be honest with them about how you're dealing with this fucked up financial situation we've been gifted by previous generations. And maybe do something to make sure we don't fuck it up for those who come after us. Because as Nona reminded me, the mythologizing has already begun for them. But I read a lot of these pieces about people just so worried and panicked about the way that teens interact with technology. And I keep wanting to be like, it's so different for all of them. Stop writing these pieces containing meaningless factoids about a whole generation. That's how we got into this mess. Thank you so, 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 so much for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money, this is the show for them. Also tell your friends who are baby boomers or Gen Zers. Or if you're a baby boomer, or if you're a Gen Zer, or a Gen Xer, we always forget about them. We love listeners of all generations. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producers are Lindsay Cradwell, Cameron Drews, and Sam Dingman. And we're edited by Chiquita Pascal. All four of those people I could not have done this season without. They are beautiful angels. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Original music for our show was composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera, and our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. I'm Gabby Dunn. Thank you for another great season. Thank you for supporting this show. Thank you for helping me get this message out. Thank you for sharing it with your friends and for tweeting about it and for just letting me know the ways that the show has changed your life, but also just letting me know that you support the message of this show because it can feel pretty lonely out here. Uh, So yeah, hit me up on Instagram at Gabby Road. You get it. Love to hear from you. If that's not enough, or if you miss me already, you should probably pre-order a copy of the Bad With Money book, which comes out January 2019. Keep up with my social media, and I'll let you know how you can do that. Okay, I love you all. You're amazing. Bye. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. 
Shop now at Hero.co.